We do appreciate the presence of each one this evening because I got a good turnout uh, tonight and appreciate that a great deal. On Sunday nights, uh, well, let's see, uh, we had uh, Simon spoke last Sunday night. The Sunday night before that, I kind of messed things up, <laughs> miscalculated when Simon was scheduled to preach. I thought it was going to be that. And the other elders were, were kind to me and gracious to me, and uh, so we sang that night as well. So it's been a, a few weeks before I've stood here on a Sunday evening. But what I've been talking about is the question that the Philippian jailer asked in Acts chapter 16. What, what must I do to be saved? We remember the circumstances of that question being raised. Paul and Silas had been arrested, put into prison. Uh, and there was an earthquake and the prison doors were opened. Uh, the uh, jailer, fearing for his own safety and his own life, rushed in, asked the question, what must I do to be saved? Uh, Paul tells him, believe on the Lord Jesus and you and your household, uh, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all who were in his house. He took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and his household, and he brought them into his house, set food before them, rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. And so, so Paul teaches him, he tells him what he needs to do, and the man becomes a Christian that very night. That's a question that everybody needs to ask. It's a question that all of us need to ask. What must I do to be saved? A very personal question, isn't it? What must I do to be saved? Uh, we are facing God in judgment. Our sins separate us from Him. And we don't want to face God in judgment, not in a right relationship with Him. We, we don't want to uh, be the recipients of God's wrath throughout all eternity. And so we, we need to ask the question, what must I do to be saved? Paul tells him, believe on the Lord Jesus. He continues to teach him, tells, gives him more information than that, teaches him that he needs to be baptized, and of course he is. Well, I want to make a few observations about all this before we really get into the heart of our study tonight. First of all, Paul's answer suggests there is something for us to do. Now, that, that's important. What must I do to be saved was the question. Now, Paul doesn't say there is nothing for you to do. You see, your salvation has been guaranteed by God's grace through Christ. And so to ask the question is, is a mistake that God has already done everything and your salvation is guaranteed by God's grace. That wasn't the question, that wasn't the answer, was it? What must I do to be saved? Okay, here's what you must do. You must believe on the Lord Jesus. That's what you must do. There is something for us to, be, uh, to do to be saved. And he goes on and explains more in his answer as well. And so verse 32 is a critical part of his answer. They spoke the word of the Lord to him. And so they, they gave him the first part of the answer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but they continue to teach him. Uh, and then eventually he is, uh, he is baptized. And so there is something for us to do. We, we, we need to make note of that. There, there's something for us to do. Secondly, the second observation is this, that a human response that is doing something does not negate the grace of God. 
Sometimes people would have us to believe that if we were required to do anything at all, any human response whatsoever, if any human response whatsoever was required for us to be saved, well, then we would be saved by works. But that, that's not the case. That often God's grace is bestowed in response to human response, to God's, to God's will or to God's, to God's gift. Sometimes God's gifts, God's blessings are bestowed on a conditional basis. Now here are some examples of that. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God was going to rescue him from the flood, but Noah built an ark. And so God, it wasn't that Noah was sinless. Noah found favor. He received God's grace, but in order to receive that salvation from the flood, he built an ark. Jericho fell when the army of Israel marched around the city according to God's instruction. In fact, if you look at Joshua chapter 6 and verse 2, God tells Israel, I have given you the city. I've already given it to you. And so that was God's gift to them, and yet that gift was delivered ultimately when they marched around the city. And so Again, human response doesn't negate the gift or the grace of God. Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5 was cleansed of his leprosy when he washed in the Jordan River seven times. Again, his cleansing was an act of God's grace. It was God's gift to him. But it was bestowed upon the condition that he washed in the Jordan River seven times. David defeated Goliath by God's help. God, God helped him in that effort, and yet... God's gift to him, so to speak, was given to him as a result of his taking the stone in the sling and slinging it. And so there was human response. And we could go on and on and on, but perhaps that's enough to make the point. Sometimes God's grace is bestowed or God's gift is bestowed on a conditional basis. If you will do this, then I will do this. You maybe have been watching uh, the weather out in California and the storms and what a terrible situation that is. And, and you've seen people rescued in, in various ways. And so here's someone, uh, maybe they're in a car and they're in a dangerous situation and the, the water is rising. And somebody goes and brings them a boat and the people get in the boat and then they're taken to safety. Well, we can see that human response is necessary for them to be saved. Did they save themselves by their own works? Well, well, no, but they had to do something. They had to get into the boat. Or you might have uh, seen the, the car that crashed off the cliff uh, a couple of weeks ago, and there was a family in the car, and turns out they at least suspect some rather sinister activity on the part of the driver. But, but anyway, remember they got a helicopter, and they lowered a cable, and they brought those people up. And, but the people had to cling to the cable or get into the basket. Would they go out and, and boast about, did you say, oh, I saved myself from that dangerous situation? Well, of course not. Even though there was something required of them in order to be saved. And so it is with us. We're, we're saved, God saves us, and yet there is something for us to do. That is, we must meet God's condition, not our conditions, but God's conditions. So, uh, in order for the Philippian jailer to be saved, the condition was, believe, you believe 
on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then again, as we've said, eventually in the account he's baptized. Our response to God's instructions do not make us deserving of salvation. And so we don't, sometimes we say we don't merit salvation or deserve our salvation, even though we're responding to the conditions that God has set forth. We have forfeited the possibility of earning our salvation when we sin, and we, we can never retain that, or we can never regain that, rather. And so when we sin, we separate ourselves from God. We are no longer deserving of salvation, no matter what we might do from that point on, to, to kind of earn it or deserve it or merit it. And so when we meet God's conditions laid out in God's gospel, and we appeal to Him to save us on His terms, well then, we know, we, we don't, that doesn't mean we merit or earn our salvation. In fact, remember Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, uh, Saul of Tarsus is told, you know, why do you wait? Arise and be baptized, calling on whose name? <laughs> the name of the Lord. You're, you're appealing to the Lord to save you when you're baptized. So those are really three important observations to make. Again, Paul's answer to the Philippian jailer suggests there is something that we must do. Secondly, our human response, our doing something, doesn't negate the grace of God. And then thirdly, the answer implies that we have the power to do it. We, we can respond to the gospel. We have the power, the ability to choose to obey. This Philippian jailer was told, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. The responsibility then is on him. We would say sometimes the ball is in his court and he has the ability, the will, if he so chooses to do that or not do that. And so it is with us. We have the ability to meet God's conditions and we, we can freely choose to refuse to meet God's conditions. Well, just those observations, those are important observations to make when considering the question. What we saw when we looked into the question is that uh, the Philippian jailer believed. And so our faith in Christ, that's necessary for us to be saved. How does faith come? Faith comes by hearing. We're all saved as a result of hearing the gospel, hearing it taught, accepting it, and then acting upon it. Believers are told to repent and then be baptized for the remission of your sins. And so hearing the gospel and putting our faith in it, turning away from sin and uh, confessing that faith and then being baptized in Jesus' name for the remission of sin. And so our final question then, is there anything more for us to do? Is anything else required of us? in order to be saved. Well, the passage I want to spend a little bit of time on tonight suggests that there is. Colossians chapter 1. So again, Colossians chapter 1, we're going to pick up in verse 21 where Paul describes the former condition of the people that are, are reading this for the first time and uh, their, their former situation and their relationship with God before they become Christians. And so verse 21 says, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And so we'll stop right there just for the moment. 
And so the, the, the readers had been reconciled to God through Christ. That we, that's what we see in verses 21 and 22. Their former state is described. They were alienated. They were alienated from God. They were hostile to God. And uh, that, uh, that describes uh, you know, an, an, uh, an enmity type situation. You're hostile toward You're not on good terms. You're engaged in evil deeds. You're hostile to God in your mind or in your thinking. That's a pretty bleak picture, isn't it? Alienated, hostile to God in your mind, engaged in evil deeds. And so it's very clear, isn't it, that they are not right with God or they were not right with God. They were lost and deserving of God's wrath. It reminded me of Ephesians chapter 2, very similar passage, which says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And so that's, that's just a good parallel passage. Uh, uh, the condition of the Colossians was very similar to the condition of the Phili- uh, Ephesians, and... Um, We were in that condition as well, but they were reconciled. And so here they are, hostile to God because of their sin. And yet verse 21 says, you've been reconciled. To be reconciled indicates, you know, bringing together of parties that were at odds, that were hostile toward each other. And I think of a marriage situation. So you have a husband and wife, and they're fighting, and they can't get along, and they decide, okay, we're just going to separate. But eventually, maybe through a lot of work and talking, they're, they're reconciled. They come back together and, and live together. And so here we are at odds with God, separated from Him because of our sin, and we were reconciled. He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death. A couple of outstanding passages in the New Testament about this idea of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 comes to mind. And beginning in, in verse 16, he says, Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The point has been made many, many times that God reconciles us to Him. We don't reconcile God to us. Now, God's not the problem. We're the problem because of our sin. And so God has taken the initiative to remedy the situation and bring us back into fellowship with Him. And so God has reconciled us to Himself through Christ, gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting the trespasses against them. And He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so God through Christ, through the the cross, is reconciling us, an alienated, lost world, back to himself. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, is another passage that deals with this idea of, of reconciliation. Verse 13, we'll just pick up there. But now in Christ, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He is our peace, who made both groups into one, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which uh, is the law of commandments contained in ordinance, so that 
He Himself might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both, that is, Jew and Gentile, in one body to God through the cross. And so God reconciles us. He brings us back into a good relationship with Himself. He does that through Christ and through His sacrifice on the cross. And so we've been reconciled. So here's the Colossians chapter 1. They were alienated, hostile toward God, but now they've been reconciled to God in Christ for a purpose. And so look at verse 22 again. In order to... Sometimes it's the little words that are the important words. So we talk about reconciliation and big theological words like that. But for the purpose of, you've been reconciled to God for a purpose. To present, so that I might be able to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. You're alienated from God because of your sin. Your sin has been forgiven so that I might be able to present you before God in, in judgment, for example, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And so Paul's looking, perhaps looking forward to that day when, in a sense, he's able to stand before God and say, here, here are some people that I've worked with. They're holy. They're blameless. They're irreproachable. And so their sins having been forgiven and washed away, they would be holy and blameless. And so it's clear from this description that now these people were right with God. They were not right with God, but they've been reconciled to God. And Paul looks forward to presenting them to God, holy and blameless and without reproach. But look at what he goes on to say in verse 23. Now, so we'll pick up in verse 22 again. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy, blameless, and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. You are alienated. Now you are reconciled. I want to be able to present you before God as holy people, which I'll be able to do if you continue in the faith. The word if, a small word, just two letters, but wow, what, what are the implications of that? The word if is called a conditional particle. That's, that's, that's the terminology that I learned anyway. It, it expresses the conditions which must exist for the desired result to occur. And so if I want to be able to present you before God as holy, here is the condition that must, that must be in place. You must continue in the faith. They would be presented to God in a holy state on the condition that they continued in the faith. Now, that raises questions like, what is the faith? What is the faith? Paul's not saying here, if you continue to have faith, if you continue to believe in God, if you continue to believe in Christ, if you continue to believe in uh, the gospel, that that's maybe involved. That's not really what's being suggested with the expression, the faith. The faith is the doctrine that was taught. And so let's look at a, a few passages that will show that, I think. Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, the Word of God kept on spreading. The number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. 
And so you can see they're, they're obeying the doctrine that they're being taught. They're becoming obedient to the faith. And so it's not that they are developing faith within themselves. They're becoming obedient to the teaching that has been delivered to them. In the little book of Jude, and the third verse, Jude says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt it necessary to write to you, appealing that you can contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So again, another passage that speaks of the faith, which you can see that what he has in mind there is the doctrine, the doc- doctrine, the teaching that has been handed down to you. Look at uh, just a couple of more, maybe uh, we don't want to belabor, belabor, belabor the point too much. Am I saying that right? Belabor the point too much. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 23. Galatians 1 verse 23. Uh, verse 22, pick up at the beginning of the sentence. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing. He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And so Paul is preaching the gospel, preaching the doctrine, preaching the faith. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 13 says, Stand firm in the faith. And then look at 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith. And so they're falling away from, not, not just that they're losing their faith, but they're becoming untrue, disloyal to the doctrine that they've been taught. And so take that information back to Colossians chapter 1, and I'll be able, Paul says, I'll be able to present you before God, holy and blameless and without reproach, if you continue to walk according to the doctrine that you've been taught, according to the faith. If you hold the true doctrine and live by it, The implication of that is clear, isn't it? What if they don't hold fast to the doctrine and live by it? Well, they won't be holy anymore. They won't be blameless. They won't be irreproachable. And Paul won't be able to present them to God in that state. And so is there anything required of us after we are initially reconciled to God? After after we become a Christian, our sins are washed away. We believe in Christ We repent of our sins, we confess our faith, we're baptized in the name of Jesus, our sins are washed away. Is there anything required of us after that? Well, yeah. We're to continue in the faith. Simple enough. We're to continue in the faith. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10 says, Be faithful unto death, and you'll receive a crown of life. Now, the details of living according to the faith are given throughout the New Testament. And so, My inclination would be, okay, let's spend some time talking about the details of that, but that's what all of our sermons are about, just about filling in the details of living a life that's that's faithful. It's summarized in several places. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, for example, Jesus says, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's, that's, That's the doctrine, isn't it? Deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. That's that's what we must do to live a faithful life. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33 tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. So that sort of summarizes our duty as disciples. Seek first the kingdom of God. 
1 John chapter 1 and verse 5 says it this way, or for, verse 7 rather, if we walk in the light, as He's in the light, we have fellowship one with another, the blood of Jesus, His Son cleanses us from all sin. And so what, what's our responsibility after we become Christians? Walk in the light. Walk in the light as He is in the light. 1 Peter chapter 1, there are lots of passages like this. Verse 15 tells us to be holy as He is holy. Galatians chapter 5 tells us to avoid the works of the flesh and develop the fruit of the Spirit. All of those are just kind of summer, summaries of our obligation once we become a Christian. We are to live a faithful life. We're to continue in the faith. In fact, there's a long passage here in Colossians chapter 3 which fills in quite a few details involved in uh, keeping the faith, living according to the faith. We are, verse 5, to consider the members of our earthly body as dead to fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. And he continues with that. And verse 12, he shifts a little bit to some positive things that we are to put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and so forth. And so we have a responsibility then to... To, to keep the faith, to continue in the faith. Responsibilities of doing that include things we've talked about in general terms, but developing personal holiness. You know, we are to become holy people as God is holy. Regular worship, you know, that would be part of uh, continuing in the faith where we worship regularly with God's people. Encouraging our brethren and building them up and supporting them. Fulfilling our responsibilities in the home, at work, in the community. Teaching others. Those are, and again we can become, we can get more detailed than that. But those are some of our responsibilities. I would like want to make this observation as well. Part of living faithfully is repentance and confession of sin. You see, we're not going to live sinlessly after we become Christians. And so when I say we are to continue in the faith or we are to live a faithful life. I don't, I don't expect us and I don't anticipate any of us living a sinless life. But part of living a faithful life is when we sin, we, we, we recognize that, acknowledge it, get it out of our lives, ask God to forgive us, and uh, just deal with it in, in a scriptural sort of way. And so when we say we must live faithfully, we don't mean sinlessly. None of us is going to do that. And so confession of sin, repentance of sin would be involved in us living faithfully. In fact, in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 there, John says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. Now, all of this raises a question, does it? Very, very important question. Quite the controversial question as well. Are, are you trying to tell me that after our sins are forgiven, we become Christians, we're disciples of Jesus, we're children of God, that we might sin so as to be lost? I mean, is, is that what you're trying to say? Well, I've always heard that once you're saved, you're always saved, or you're eternally secure. Well, while a lot of people believe that, there are clear passages that teach otherwise. The one we're looking at being one. You know? I'm going to present you before God holy and blameless and irreproachable if you continue in the faith. But there are others. I've got ten of them listed here. Just, just going to go over them quickly. 
in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, a, a really a clear statement to this effect, that a, a person who is righteous may turn away from his righteousness, and so sin as to be lost. Look at verse 24. When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, does according to all the abominations that a wicked man does, will he live? All his righteous deeds which he has done will not be remembered for his treachery which he has committed and his sin which he has committed. For them he will die. We could go on to read, but perhaps that's enough. And so here's a man, he's righteous, but he turns away from his righteousness and he's going to be held responsible for, for his sin. Seems like a, a clear statement to me that there, there is a possibility. Now, if he maintains his righteousness, well, that's not, that's not going to happen. But if he turns away, and that's his decision to turn away, well, then the consequences are severe. Look at Matthew chapter 13. Jesus tells the parable of the sower is the parable I'm going to look at. Remember, the different types of soil represent different people. And verse 20 says, The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word, and immediately receives it with joy. He hears the word, he receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary when affliction or persecution arises because of the word. Immediately he falls away. Falls away. It's impossible to fall away. Well, Jesus says you, could, you can. You can fall away. You can receive the word. You can begin even to grow and develop. But there's that possibility that you can fall away. Can you fall away from a place that you've never been? <laughs> no, I think not. In Acts chapter 8, find uh, Simon the magician, the sorcerer, becoming a Christian. It's very clear in the earlier part of this passage. He, he becomes a Christian. That's verse 13. Even Simon himself believed after being baptized. He continued on with Philip. Later on, he tries to buy the gift of God with money, this ability to lay his hands on people and impart to them the, the gifts of the Spirit. And Peter has some very strong things to say about him. Look at verse 20. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. You're, you're in danger of perishing because of what you've done. A little bit later, he, he says that he's done wickedness in verse 22. And then in verse 23, you're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Does it sound like he's on very firm footing with God because of, his, because of his sin? Now, he became a Christian. There's no indication in the text that that was a, sort of a, you know, a shallow a formality, a religious ritual that he went through. And there's not anything like that in the text. He became a Christian. And yet, he sinned and he was in danger of perishing. Look at Romans chapter 8. Here's, a, here's a, another passage that suggests this same thing. Romans chapter 8. And we're going to begin in verse 12 where Paul says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if the, by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He's writing to Christians in Rome. He says, you know, we, we as Christians, we, we need to be living according to the Spirit and if by the Spirit we're putting to death the deeds of the flesh, we're going to live. That is, we're going to live spiritually. However, if on the other hand we, we Christians, are living according to the flesh, we're going to die. That We're going to die spiritually. And so again, 
Well, it seems to me to be a pretty clear passage that even as Christians, if we live according to the flesh, well, we are in danger of the second death. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul uh, uh, writes to the, uh, the Corinthians, encouraging them to be faithful. And toward the end of that particular passage, verse 27, he refers to himself and his, his own situation. He says, you know, I, I have to discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be rejected or disqualified. And so here Paul recognized his responsibility. I've disciplined my body. I practice self-control because I understand that if I don't, well, I, I could be in danger myself, even after I've taught others to become Christians. In the very next chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, after several examples of Israel, Old Testament Israel, uh, rebelling and, and falling in the wilderness, many of them dying, Paul says in verse 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So we may fall just like the Israelites, who also were God's covenant people. They fell, they died in the wilderness. So we too, God's covenant people today, may sin and fall. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4 says, You've been severed with Christ, or been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22, not a very pleasant picture that Peter uh, describes for us there, kind of gross actually. But, but he says in verse 20, If after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are entangled in them and overcome the last state, has become worse for them than the first. It, were, it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It's happened to them according to the true proverb, the dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. So here are people, they've escaped the world, they've escaped the defilements of the world. How? By their own effort and, you know, just mental fortitude? Well, no through a knowledge of Christ. They've come out of the world, and yet they go back into the world. It's a very, uh, very bad situation indeed. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 1. And in fact, several passages in the book of Hebrews. I'll just select two. Hebrews 4 verse 1. He's been talking about Israel and how that first generation of Israel fell, fell short of entering into the promised land. You remember they, they fell in the wilderness that first generation. And then chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore let us fear, if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Again, he's writing to Christians, chapter 3, verse 1. He addresses them as holy brethren. And yet, you may fall short of the promised land that God has promised to us. And then Hebrews chapter 6. Look at the description of the people that he has into consideration here. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. This we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, have tasted of the heavenly gift, have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. 
It's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucified themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. And so here are people that are clearly, it seems clear to me, they've tasted the heavenly gift and partakers of the Holy Spirit and so forth, but then they fall away. And so there's, there's ten passages. <laughs> and there are others as well. Ten passages which teach us that we must continue in the faith. There is more for us to do, even after our sins initially have been forgiven. That we must continue in the faith. We must continue to be faithful disciple. Well, that's the, the end of our, our study. What, what must I do to be saved? That's a good question, isn't it? It's really a question every, every one of us, we all need to ask, because we're all in danger. We've all sinned fall short of God's glory. It's our sin that separates us from God. It's our sin that puts us in a dangerous position. And so we want to be saved from God's wrath that will be poured out upon us because of our, our sin. So I hope that each of us, if we haven't asked ourselves this question already, that we will in fact ask it, what must I do to be saved? The answer is the same for everyone, isn't it? Believe on the Lord Jesus. Repent of your sin. Confess your faith. Be baptized in Jesus' name for the remission of sins, and you'll be saved, and then you begin to live that faithful life. When you fall short, when you sin, which we all do, well then you, you acknowledge that. You admit that. You get it out of your life. You ask God to forgive you, and, and He will. And then you continue that walk. And we hope that all of us will consider that and uh, we'll, seek, we'll seek the answer. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for the opportunities we've had to, today to meet together and to worship you. And we pray, Father, that our efforts have been acceptable to you. That's, that's, our, that's our aim, Father, on the Lord's Day, on situations like this, occasions like this, that we worship you in a way that pleases you. If we'll do that, Father, we'll be built up by it and we'll be encouraged by it. We're so thankful, Father, that you love us, that you're concerned about us, that you want us to be reconciled to you, and that you've taken the initiative to make that possible by sending your Son into the world, sending him to the cross to make atonement for our sin. Father, may we believe that with all of our heart. May we commit to Jesus as our Lord, our, the Christ. May we turn away from sin and devote ourselves to following in His steps. May we have the strength of character to stand up before men and say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And may we be humble enough to submit to your command to be baptized in His name and be united with Him in that way. Father, help us in our daily walk. Help us to walk in the steps of Jesus Help us to be faithful disciples, to deny ourselves each day and follow Him. Help us, Father, to walk in the light as You are light, to walk in Your light all along the way, that we trust You to lead us and to guide us into everlasting life. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.